If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, first-time dark fantasy author, Faye Trask. Hello. And welcome to episode number 62 of the Great Writer Share podcast, a podcast where every week we hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join us on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, roar, and bounce. My name is Faye Trask, and it is the 16th of November as of recording. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. So let's dive right into my personal update. As of this morning, my little heater in my office is broken. So I get to freeze all winter long. It makes me so sad because it's quite chilly in here this morning. Not happy. In writing news for me, I have completed my rough draft uh, about halfway through October which I am so excited about. A lot of people say that that's the hardest thing, getting that first 30,000 words is very difficult. And every time someone says that to me, I'm like, well, my rough draft is only 37. So, yep. (laughs) The biggest thing to remember for new writers is that your rough draft does not have to be 100,000 words or 50,000 words or whatever. The word count that you need to tell your story is the word count it needs to be. I managed to tell my story in 37,000 words, but I left a lot of details out that I know are missing. I'm going to go back and put them in, and it's going to be great. I'm so excited about that. But all you new writers out there, don't stress over the rough draft word count. Just right. That's all you need. So because I completed my rough draft, I was kind of lost and I didn't know what to do. So I hired a book coach, which has been the best decision I could have made. And I highly recommend anyone, whether you're a new writer or trying a new genre, even trying a series for the first time, if you're in uncharted territory, possibly look into getting a book coach. My book coach is absolutely amazing. They have asked me numerous questions that I only put little thought in before when I was originally writing. And now we have created so much background and lore and 
just incredible things that I am so excited to put into my book that I would have not even considered any of those items if I had not had someone holding my hand along the way, shall we say. So it is coming up on the holiday season. Well, actually, the holiday season is already upon us. There was a holiday just yesterday, I believe. I don't know which one, because there are a lot. So if you are looking for the perfect holiday gift for any of your writer friends, hop on over to www.danielwilcox.com forward slash merch forward slash great writer share and check out the great merch we have. We have travel mugs, we have notebooks, we got t-shirts, sweatshirts, you name it. Go over and check out the site. Maybe you can find that perfect gift for the writer you know. I want to give out a big thank you to everyone who answered the question of the week this week as posted on Patreon and Facebook. The question we asked was, how does travel affect your writing? Does it inspire? Does it hinder? Does it make you feel more connected to your story? The wonderful Meg Jolly said, I'm feeling stifled by lockdown and not being able to travel, even to nearby places, let alone far ones. That's just a distant dream right now. I find travel so inspiring and soak up the cultures where I go. I miss it and I hope to travel again soon. I I agree, Meg. That's my favorite thing about traveling is seeing different cultures from just right in the middle of it. It's, it's inspiring. Julie Heiner says, I love riding on the road. I can't do it right now, but when I traveled, I used versions of my tools on my phone. That is so true, Julie. And because of today's technology, it is absolutely amazing that we have that ability to simply put a note on our phone or even write out whole documents. It's, I miss traveling. I love technology. I'm a tech geek. (laughs) So thank you, thank you again for answering our question of the week. Today's guest is Lucinda E. Clark. We had such an amazing conversation. We could have talked for hours. We discussed how Lucinda fell into numerous jobs, her versatility as a writer, and the many adventures she had due to it. I am so excited for you guys to hear our interview. Before we get into the show, we wanted to remind you about our Patreon community over at www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare, where for as little as $1 a month, you can get involved in our behind-the-scenes group, benefiting from early ad-free access episodes of the show, join our private Slack channel, ask upcoming guests any of your questions, and get involved in our monthly giveaway. So if you like the idea of upping your author career and getting all of that good stuff, then one more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share. And now, without any further ado, let's dive into the interview with the one and only Lucinda E. Clark. 
Today's guest is the amazing Lucinda E. Clark. Lucinda is a, an award-winning self-published writer of memoir and psychological thriller, a globe traveler, screenwriting lecturer, and owner of a South African video production company. She is the recipient of a number of awards, including a finalist for Book Excellence Awards, the 2017 New Apple Award for Excellence in Independent Publishing, a two-time winner of the Reader's Favorite Book Award, and a finalist in the Independent Author Network's Book of the Year Awards. Lucinda has lived a colorful life, having met Nelson Mandela, broadcasted with a bayonet to her throat, managed a rock band, gotten involved in a crowd at a public hanging, sur survived riots, dodged a hail of bullets, as well as deportation from Libya. And now she is here to join us on Great Writer Share podcast. Lucinda, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That was an amazing introduction. But I survived it all. You can tell that because I'm here now. Absolutely. I I had to read your bio several times because you have lived such an amazing life. Like that's that's the type of life that books are written about, like dreams are made of there. That just proves your diligence with everything. So I, I gotta know a little bit more about this rock band. Because it's not it's not often people go from managing a rock band to writing novels. <laughs> It was very much a part-time thing to start with. I was already scripting for the South African Broadcasting Corporation, mainly at that time, uh, radio programs. And in fact, my ex got involved. He was working down in Swaziland and he got involved with the uh, King Maswati III's 21st birthday celebration concert, which was going to be bigger and better than that huge one that was held in America. I can't remember the name of it. You'll have to, excuse me, I'm getting very old, wrinkly, and crazy <laughs> these days. So anyway, Nebs, was it Nebsworth? Something like that, anyway. And um, so they had 33 bands playing over three days. And the first act on was a group called Iron Mosque. And they got very friendly with my husband, and they asked him to manage them. And he said, fine. But what he didn't really think about was that he was still living and working in Swaziland, and I was living and working in Johannesburg. So, of course, the band came home to Johannesburg because the whole concert had been in Swaziland. And uh, it sort of fell to me to manage them. And I would say if anybody is thinking about managing a rock band, there's only one word. Don't. <laughs> it, is, it is like trying to round up cats, you know, in a five-acre field. Uh, I tried to get them gigs, but they were a heavy rock band. And it was very hard to try and get them into small clubs because they, when they're set up, I mean, the whole room just bounced. Oh, you yeah. know, ceilings, walls, floors, the lot. They were very talented. Um, the lead singer was a nightmare. He, I can't remember what job he had during the day, but I do know his part-time job was stripping for ladies' hen parties. And he oh, also nice. ate fire. And he could never remember the words to his songs. So <laughs> but it was about two years I tried to get them gigs and tried to get them into the band room for rehearsal and all kinds of things. It was fun. Um, 
if you like tearing your hair out. And they did have a gig which started at midnight and ended at three o'clock in the morning once a week. So that was a late night. Oh, quite wow. frequently. Yes, ow. <laughs> um, I think it, I think they could have done well, but they just weren't very disciplined. So anyway, I don't think anything. I did change their name. I thought this is brilliant. I must tell you this. I changed their name from Iron Mask to Alchemy because I said they were turning base metal, rock metal, into gold. Nice. Yes. I thought that was Love brilliant. It. Yeah, <laughs> that is. I did too. They weren't very impressed, but I was. <laughs> that, anyway. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> But one of them went off overseas, and I don't really know it bit by bit. They just sort of drifted apart. Yeah. They were all in their early 20s, and guys of that age, I don't, I don't know. They, they were great guys. We had a lot of fun, but it all came to an end. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. So switching back to writing, I've got questions all over the map. We're going to be unlinear as much as possible. That's, <laughs> That's what I do. How has living in so many places, because I believe in your bio, it's like eight different countries. Are you on to That's nine? Right. How has that affected your writing? I think, in fact, if you go back a few decades to when people were writing these novels that sort of sold lots but never won anything, you know, like the Booker Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, you'll find in their bios that they were, they worked on merchant ships and they worked in, you know, digging holes in Alaska's ice and they were waiters, they were, you name it, they did it, they drove lorries, whatever. And I think it really does help because I've got a lot to pull on. I've got a lot of experiences. I've got a lot of things that have happened to me that I can include in the writing. So I do think, yes, it helps a lot. I agree completely because I've, I've been to, I think, five countries. And I think the biggest thing that someone could pull from that is you learn about those cultures. And if you do become a writer at that, yeah. or if you are writing, you can add a little bit more authenticity into your work. I love that. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> it, 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 it also widens your uh, whole horizon. You can understand other cultures where you've seen them in action. You've seen different uh, politics in action, different religions in action, different scenery, different ways of getting about, different mindsets. And mindset is, I think, the main thing. That Absolutely. if you understand mindsets... And everybody thinks, oh, well, I've lived in country A all my life, and therefore I expect all the other countries in the world to think like me, want the same things I want, do the same things that I want to do, and nothing could be further from the truth. I couldn't agree more. I, I got that uh, reality check when I went to Israel, and we were just walking around Jerusalem and went up this random set of stairs, and we were on a bunch of rooftops, and of course, being American, I instantly thought of Disney's Aladdin. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Agrabah. And I had no idea what time it was, but all of a sudden, the like this music was playing in the air and it was time for them to pray. And I'm like, oh. And I just stood up there and I watched all of this happening. I'm like, yeah, this, this is, we need more of this. 
A good example I, I had is that when we were filming in a rural field, miles from anywhere in the middle of South Africa, um, I'd done a lot of educational programs beforehand. That was my main focus because I was a teacher before I fell into the media. I fall into things all, all my life. And I was talking to her about, you know, education and how getting on and all the rest of it. And she looked at me and she said, I don't want any of that. I am happy with my little patch of land. I am happy growing my vegetables. I do not want to get exams. I do not want to go to university. I do not want my children to take exams or go to university. I want them to live here with me in our compound and just be happy. And I thought, wow, we automatically assume everybody wants to climb up and up and up. Don't mm. Yeah, it's, wow. it's what's right for some is, is fine, but it's not right for everybody. That's that is so true. I think a lot of people need to realize that and be like, everyone's got their own drummer to march to. True, very true. Yes, <laughs> you put it much better than I did. So, looking at your impressive backlog of books, you do have a book labeled The Worst Riding School. Can you tell me about can you tell me about your whole horseback riding school? What what happened there? Oh dear dear. Um it's the very worst riding school because I wasn't a worst one. If you have a riding instructors with five horses, three of which are um fit for the knacker's yard and nothing else because they can hardly walk. Uh and you've got the pony club manual stuck down the front of your jodpers, right? <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be down there <laughs> among the very worst. I fell into that as well. Um, my ex, who was a charismatic Walter Mitty that you uh, just couldn't trust. Um, he reminds me of somebody who's been very popular in your country recently. <laughs> and, and he um, he bought two horses when we were moving from one town in, in France, in Botswana, to another town. Um, without having a horse box or anything. And it's 400 kilometers. So oh, that's just a minor problem. We did manage to solve it. And when I realized I'd never owned a horse in my life before, I couldn't really ride very well. And I was quite scared of them because I'd been kicked a few times and stood on a few times. But my children were over the moon. And um, one thing led to another. Uh, they were expensive to keep. And then somebody said to me, you know, I hear you've got a horse. I don't believe your daughter. She says, you've got a horse. And I said, well, we do have a horse, yes, a pony, uh, too. And uh, she said, well, can I come and ride them? My mummy will pay. Well, of course, ding dong. You know, <laughs> think, I'm thinking, wow, that'll help pay for the horse feed. And I was feeding them almost pure oats, which anybody who's listening and knows anything about horses knows how appalling that is because it's like putting aeroplane fuel into your, you know, common every day sit down oh no <laughs> so anyway she came along and sure enough her mother paid her and then one thing led to another and more little kids came and in the end I was teaching seven days a week in the afternoons I'm still teaching in the morning at the school and then I'd collect them all in the land cruiser in the afternoon take them to the the stables that we finally built and um it's it sort of devolved from there one did actually do very well and he became a trainee jockey later on but only one um of all the others we just had a lot of them <laughs> it was just very badly done i mean <laughs> i wouldn't we did win rosettes but only because our horses were by that time pretty pretty good about such things you know i mean they 
they seem to get the idea of things and we practice and we did have a couple of gymkhanas with the next town um and we took them in a beer truck it was the only thing we could find to take <laughs> five horses excellent. and it took two lessons you know lesson that tuesday was how to get your horse into a jibuku beer truck because he didn't like the smell of the, <laughs> the beer <laughs> so anyway we finally got them inside and we got them down to sleepy pickwe and we did very well with the rosettes and then we you know it was just it was just a lot of fun that's awesome. I've only had uh, one interaction with a horse and the person told me like, oh, don't worry, he's trained, he's trained. And I rode the horse or I got on the horse and all of a sudden it's like, guess what? We're going to run. And I actually got <laughs> like clotheslined by a tree. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> but that yeah, when, was- I look, when I look back on it now, though, it's really quite scary because I had no insurance. Right, there was no real hospital in Francistown where we were, so we'd have had to have relied on Botswana Game Industries to bring in a chopper to airlift any injured kid down to Johannesburg, which was 800 kilometers. And in fact, in all the time I did it, which is about two years over two years, um, we only had one broken arm, and parents didn't even think about suing, bless her. Um, so no qualifications and no insurance. That is enough to show you it was not a good writing school. <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. You've written so many books. Like, I I was amazed and just scrolling through, I'm like, which one do I want to pick? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> you have your memoir. There's mm-hmm. only one memoir. And then you no, have... No, 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 there's three. There, there's three. Okay, I three wasn't memoirs. sure on that. So you have memoirs and you have psychological thrillers. Yep. How how did you decide to switch? Or did you decide to switch? Did it just kind of come to you? What happened Look, there? I did the memoir first. And then I thought, I wonder if I could write a novel. Because I've been writing scripts for, what, coming up 40 years, you know, for radio and TV. And I thought it's quite different. And, and other things, you know, like company reports or um, adverts or um bits in the paper, articles for magazines and so on. But I'd never written a full-length book novel before. So I thought, I wonder if I can do it. So I did what happened to me, and it's not really that autobiographical, is that I took this girl out of this cosy um, suburban place in, in UK and I put her on a plane, I sent her to Africa and she got settled into the expatriates community and then I had civil war break out and then she escapes and she has to slog across the desert in order to survive. Um, so I, that was the second book I wrote and then I thought, I'm beginning to lose my mind. You, you do when you get older. It'll come to you. But I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I did then is I wrote two more memoirs of all my filming and my writing career. Truth, lies and propaganda and more truth, lies and propaganda. Okay. So I thought, right, that's my life out of the way because I can read them again when I'm older and remember who I am. I can introduce myself. That was quite clever. And then I did four more Amy books, which was the girl I took to Africa. And they so reasonably, well, I'm, I'm lousy at marketing. I, I, I'm just hopeless at it, really. I've had to learn a whole new... Um, business, if you like, because writing was 50% business, 50% writing. And um, then psychological thrillers seemed to be very popular. So I thought, I wonder. So I penned one 
and it's outsold all my African books. Wow. And I think, oh, right. Well, let's write a second one. And because I'm greedy and because I can't stop writing, I wrote a third. And I'm now in the middle of doing the f- – oh, dear, sorry about that. Um, I'm right now in the middle of writing the fourth. Wow. That is – that's so awesome. I I love seeing that, that you, someone's going off on one thing and they're like, ah, I'm just going to throw my hand at this, see what happens. And then all of a sudden that that's what explodes. It's like, there you go. Now you found it. That's awesome. It, it actually, it, it seems to be the wrong thing to do because everybody says, oh, Stephen King, ah, oh, he writes scary stuff. You know, James Patterson, ah, oh, he writes spy, you know, whatever stuff. Yep. Um, and they're known for that. But there is a limit, I think, to how many in a particular series you can write without beginning to sound repetitive. I think it's almost impossible. Yes. And in fact, their earlier books are much, in my personal opinion, than their later books. And I begin to think, I've read this before. He's done that before. He's jumped off this rooftop, whatever. Um, so, and the fact that when I was script writing, I was writing for education on all kinds of subjects, everything from splitting the atom to how to bake bread, or, I mean, on a Monday, I would write a program for the Health, uh, the Heart Foundation saying you must only eat red meat because that's the only thing that will keep you alive and healthy. And the next day, I'd be writing for a major crisp or chip, you call them in America, don't you? Uh, things say, don't worry about meat and stuff. What you need is good fried potatoes because they have got more vitamin D, etc. And that's why my books are called Truth, Lies and Propaganda because you are you're very careful about which facts you choose to include and which you sort of conveniently forget. So I've written everything from splitting the atom to how to climb a ladder safely. So as far as I'm concerned, you can hopefully, I I think in my case, I can either write or I can't write. And if I can write, I can write about anything. Absolutely. Wow. With with your script writing, was that part of your production company or was that before? Well, I fell into that too. Um, I was happily, as I thought, teaching in Johannesburg and I got fired. Now, I've never been fired in my life before because I'm one of these boring, conscientious people who've never had as much as a parking ticket, you know. Um, And for some reason, I got the job. So a friend of mine who uh, was teaching drama at the school, in fact, her husband was working at the South African Broadcasting Corporation. He said, you've worked on radio before, haven't you? And I said, yes, I have, for about five years. And she said, well, why don't you go for an audition at the SABC? So I went and I had this continuity audition, which was an absolute disaster. They asked me to read a page in Afrikaans. And I sort of read it phonetically. I mean, any foreign language, you sort of sit down and you look at it, and you try and read it. I mean, everybody was just, in fact, they were calling people into the control room to come and listen to me because it was just so funny. They were absolutely. Oh, right. <laughs> then they asked me about all these famous people in South Africa, and I'd only been there about a year. And I didn't, I mean, I did tell them this famous opera singer was the Ministry of Finance. So it didn't go down terribly well either. So, um, they then said, why don't you go to the drama department? And uh, so I went for an audition there and I wrote my own stuff because I didn't have anything suitable. They gave me 24 hours notice. And the guy there who ran the English drama department picked me up and said, look, I might use you. I'll use you for a few things occasionally in plays if I'm desperate, but you can write, go home and write. And that's what I'd always wanted to do since I was about five and read naughty books under the... Under the- <laughs> 
you know, when I should have been asleep. Oh, yes. And that was just brilliant. And I just went home and I started writing. And when I was earning so much from my writing, mainly for radio at that point, plays, uh, series, etc., various managers picked me up and I was writing, I think, a total of about 20, 30 broadcast minutes a day. I mean, I was just literally piling them up like some sort of robot almost. Um, and when I was earning so much of my writing, I could afford to go out teaching. Then I went writing and then I sort of fell into television because somebody else picked me up and said, would you come and write scripts for our program on TV, which I did. And then I sort of got involved on the production side because a lot of TV people can be very, what's the word, best word of describing it without being awful. They, they, they just threw wobblies and had temper tantrums and threw Oh, their, yes. Yeah, <laughs> you put it in one word, yes. And I sort of, and I was still freelance. I've been freelance always. I've never been employed by anyone as such as, as on a full-time basis. And um, I just sort of ended up as the program manager from having just started writing scripts and being, being a PA and finding locations and all this kind of thing. So I had this kind of background. And then when I moved to from Johannesburg down to Durban, I went on writing scripts for a while and then I got involved in the production. I started directing. Then when I'd done that for a few years, um, I went in with somebody and we bought the equipment and started, well, I did the production side, he did the editing side. So I ended up sort of running this, you know, video production company. Oh, holy. <laughs> it wasn't big. It wasn't big. It sounds a lot more important than it was, you know. Um, in fact, the, the bank manager was a bit worried about, you know, how come you're bringing in all this money? What the hell have you got going on? <laughs> Suspicious. I, yes. but, uh, no, it worked. It worked. And uh, we won a lot of awards and stuff. And uh, I'd like to think that I've done some good in just helping to uplift people. And a lot of the stuff was, you know, how you do things. We'd go out into the field and show people how they worked and how they'd achieve things and how they made things better. That's amazing. Is is your production company how you came to meet people like Nelson Mandela? Because Nelson Mandela is like, if nobody knows who he is, then what's wrong with you? You should know. I mean, I'm 32 and I know who Nelson Mandela is. So can That's you tell our audience a little bit more <laughs> about that? Well, first, let me tell you what we were out filming in a rural area. We were in a school. We were filming school for the day. And we walked into the classroom and the teacher said, so pleased to meet you. Right, we've got everything ready for you. Right, I'm going to ask the children a question. We said, fine, you know, go for it. And she said, who is the most famous man in South Africa? There was a long, silent pause. And then one little kid put his hand up and says, my daddy. And she said, no, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, somebody that a lot of people know. And the next answer was uh, the headmaster. That wasn't right either. Then they went for the tribal chief. That wasn't right. She was about to tear her hair out. I felt so sorry for this teacher. Because <laughs> I've been talking to them all week about Nelson Mandela, and they obviously hasn't gone in the right way. <laughs> um, no, I uh, Durban at the time, I, I did a lot of work for Durban Corporation. They had a full-scale video unit, which was brilliant. We made films for uh, international conferences. We made films for the different uh, municipality, municipal things like roads, water, sewage, police, 
um, fire, you name it, we made it, covered the whole gamut. And Durbin was host of the um, Non-Aligned Movement International Business Conference. So all the head of all the non-aligned movement countries in the world attended this in this brand new conference center and Nelson Mandela was there to open it and of course we got a we got an interview with him which was one of my possibly my 15 minutes of fame there and gone because there was Reuters outside BBC CNN ABC CBC all of them desperate to have a word with him but he had one rule you never use flash photography he'd had eye surgery and they had not it it was quite dark in one of the uh, well not dark but darkish in one of the areas in the international convention center and they had been using flash so he was in a filthy mood and he was not going to give an interview to anybody except for Durban corporation because they were hosting it they were etc so it was my team of two others plus him plus three security guards in one room um, and he gave us an interview. Wow, that's <laughs> that. That was that was a nice moment. <laughs> I'm like speechless just thinking about someone meeting him. <laughs> he actually scared me a lot, Faye. He really did because uh, he wasn't in a good mood. Uh, it wasn't going to be broadcast with him and me like him and the Spice Girls standing down in Cape Town or anything like that. And he was very abrupt and. He had bright blue eyes and he was, he was over six foot and wow. very, you know, there's really powerful people that you meet um, that sort of exude power and you, yep. you feel about, oh, yes, I did that. Um, I, I felt the same when I, when I um, chatted to Prince Charles, I just thought he was a bit of a wet because everybody laughed and said he talked to plants and, you know, he did this, that and the other. But in fact, when I did actually meet him, he was, I thought very confident, very, very personable, very controlled, very calm. Uh, and But then if you have that kind of power and that money, um, I think it just happens. Yeah. You know, it just, it just there's an aura about you that's different. But Nelson Mandela certainly, um, you know, has has won the, um, from the rest of the world, he's, he's won a lot of accolades, that's for sure. Absolutely. And, like you were saying, meeting someone, especially of that stature, is like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? <laughs> like you almost have a panic attack. I I would never have been able to do that. <laughs> oh, you would, you would. It's it's really. Um, I mean, I fell over Graco Michelle. Now Graco Michelle was his second wife. Um, well, in fact, his third wife, I think. Yes, because his first wife stayed in the village and his second wife was Minnie Mandela. Um, and she hissed at me. She she came out with a load of expletives and I thought, I don't think we're going to be best friends ever. I didn't mean to trip over her, but she did have her feet you know, stuck out and I just happened to be fairly dark in the con you know, while the speeches were going on. So uh, but I did meet quite a few um in, you know people who of influence and chatted to them and as I say they were uh, just 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 in the right place at the right time, put it that way. That's awesome. I love that. I've only ever met two actors. <laughs> like that was it. <laughs> I met Mark Wahlberg and Kiefer Sutherland at random places. <laughs> so switching it's... gears again, mm-hmm. back to your books. Right. Memoirs and thrillers. What 
do you think makes the best of each of those? What makes a great memoir? What makes a great psychological thriller? I don't know. I think my strength is in uh, the narrative. Not the narrative. What am I talking about? In the, um, oh, goodness, when people talk to each other, dialogue. Ah, I think that's probably my strength, simply because of all the years that I wrote scripts. I would have to write the dialogue, but then I would be on the other side of the the scripts, paper, if you like. I'd be writing pan across front of school or pan down to ground level or pull focus on such and such. This is where I had this big transition to writing books. Can I write one? Um, so I think dialogue has been my strength and I've got to be very careful that I don't put too much dialogue in and not enough, uh, description of, of what they are and and where they are, you know? So I think, yeah. And as for ideas, I don't know where they come from. I've got no idea. I just sit down and I have an idea of what's going to happen at the end and what's going to happen at the beginning. And I just go for it. In fact, I have just my, I've just completed a short novella to go in with a compendium with other writers and just this morning I woke up in bed and thought hang on a minute I'm going to add to that now it's the second round of editing at the moment but I'm going to send him an email tonight to say look I've just thought of this new ending to tack on the end do you think it will work um because just ideas just come to you usually in the shower when you can't write them down (laughs) yeah or driving I've noticed that too yes yes (laughs) So are, I noticed a couple of your books. I'm not sure if they're all published under, I'm probably going to, oh. I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this. Amhalga Press? Amschlange. Okay. I think there was it's, a typo. <laughs> no, no. It's Amschlange Press. Uh, no, I, look, I'm, I'm being a bit naughty here. I'm just calling myself that from the point of view of publishing. Right. Oh, I love um, it. <laughs> it. It's the name actually means place of the reeds. And when we lived in South Africa, we lived in an area, a suburb called Umschlanga Rocks. So I did Google to make sure there wasn't an Umschlanga press anywhere. So if you look closely and, and you Google it, you won't find that they've got a registered office or anything like that. And Umschlanga is part of the reed dance that they have in Swaziland every year, where the king chooses one, a new wife every year. And the bare-breasted maidens um, danced past him waving reeds. So it was just a, a throwback to the African thing, really. Oh, wow. I, I love that. I tried to pronounce it beforehand. I'm like, nope, I got to ask for clarification on that. That's In fact, so- I, t- I tell you what, um, Christa Berg, when he first came, um, we, we knew his manager quite well. Uh, the first night that we went to his... Uh, concert because we just got tickets for every night we went every night and i said to him after the first night uh, actually it's not um hanger it's um shlanga so he put it right for the rest of the tour which was quite a good cool thing <laughs> that's awesome so i did see in your bio that you are currently in spain mm-hmm. is that correct yes. yeah i gotta know where in spain because I, I did visit spain rota specifically on one mm-hmm. of my very bouncy trips to <laughs> the <laughs> Europe. So where in Spain are you, if yeah. you don't mind? No, no. no. I'll, I'll be a little bit vague because I've been wise to. We're about halfway down on the right-hand side. We're uh, equidistant more or less from Valencia and Alicante. 
So we can look down over the Mediterranean. It's about five kilometers. Oh, beautiful. And I can see it uh, in what I call our little rabbit hutch. It's not big, but it suits us. And we're here for the duration now. That's great. I I love Spain. That's one of the best things. But I will say the rain in Spain goes everywhere. It does not stay on the plane. (laughs) It doesn't. It doesn't. We had quite a heavy downpour about two nights ago, and we were actually looking at all the bits of rubble in the roads, you know, yesterday as we went uh, along the road. Yeah, that was one of the biggest impressions when I was there was the rain because the entire road just turned into a river. And I'm like, I'm not crossing that. I'm going back to my room. Bye. <laughs> yes. It, they have what they call a goshefria and it's, it comes down like steroids. It just absolutely pours down and pours down because we don't have it all the time. The drainage systems here are pretty, um, pretty wanting one way or another, you know, and it just, the, it, the streets fill up very quickly, but it, it's amazing within a couple of hours once it stops raining it's all gone (laughs) yeah that that is impressive how quickly it dries up it's almost like it never rained yes i didn't realize spain would be quite so cold what happened was that we realized that time in africa was probably not for us anymore all our children had left and and gone you know to europe and now some of them are australia um and i was getting sidelined towards the end which is very sad because my clients wanted me to make programs but government restrictions and even though i uh, split my company and went in with uh people of different nationalities if you like um it still wasn't a black empowerment i, I went the, the full route and re-registered and everything it still wasn't enough to get me the work and things were getting a little bit uncomfortable there. So I woke my husband up in the middle of the night and said, do you realize that because we've got a British passport, we can live anywhere we like in the EU? Because I knew that South uh, UK was going to be too cold, too many clouds, too wet, too windy. I, I, I would, that would just kill me. Um, so then we sort of started looking around as to where we could settle and Spain was our choice. That's awesome. I I love that. (laughs) That's one of the things I do miss is traveling. (laughs) Well, we're hoping to travel a bit more, but um, if if the COVID doesn't go away with the next few years, we'll be doing it in in our wheelchairs and our walkers and stuff. I don't know. (laughs) Nobody will hire us a car. Um, But yes, Russia's next on our list. Oh, wow. (laughs) We came back from India in March, which all sounds very, you know, very exotic but uh and just eight hours before complete lockdown in spain and um russia's next on the, on the list but it won't be this year and it probably won't be next year either yeah we we'll see how all that goes hopefully fingers crossed things get better <laughs> <laughs> i know i've got a trip planned for tennessee next year so i'm definitely come on let's clear it all up <laughs> let's go <laughs> I'd love to do a road trip around America. I really would. That That's on my bucket list, you know, with one of these big camper vans or something and park in Walmart car parks and stuff. Oh, yes. If you ever come to New England, I highly suggest July through about mid-September. After that, mm. it's freaking cold. <laughs> yes. oh, I do the hot bits, yes. <laughs> so you've had numerous awards. Yes. In independent publishing, were there some, because the list is about as long as my arm, (laughs) were some in for uh, the production company, for screenwriting, 
all mixed together or are they strictly just writing awards? The, one, the ones I sent you, I think, are, are all strictly writing. Um, I did have them. When we had this enormous mansion place in Shlanka Rocks, we're now in this little rabbit hutch in Spain, um, I did have them all framed and up on the wall. Uh, 21 of them, I think, and now they're in a box under the bed, uh, never to see the light of day. I'm sure, <laughs> sure when I want somebody to just tear them all up. Yes, I did get a lot for the script writing and for directing and, and for overall concepts and stuff on various programs that we made. Um, I was very lucky. That That's amazing. That's one of the things I, I never know if I could actually win an award for my writing or even like put in for an award on it. I, I think I'm still too early in my career for that. <laughs> when you think about it, I mean, I, I was what? I was 60 by the time I published, self-published my first book. I did have two um, published by the big five way back in 1990, but they were commissioned. And when I think about it now, I just didn't, they asked me, to write a whole series. They were educational books. They asked me to write a whole series, Macmillan um, did, and I turned them down because I couldn't afford to, I had this Walter Missy husband, I couldn't rely to bring, you know, bring the money home at the end of every month. And so I actually turned down what would have happened if I'd actually been able to accept and then go on to writing novels and stuff if I was still with them. That's another story. But at the time I said, no, thanks, because script writing and, and producing videos and that are paid in 30 days. And I couldn't wait six months for royalties and I didn't know how much they'd be. And I had two children who were so selfish, they insisted on having food and shelter and clothes. <laughs> how dare they? <laughs> Absolutely. Plus, plus the St. Bernard, plus, um, you know, the, the domestic help because without her I could never have succeeded because she was just brilliant. She kept the whole house running. Um, plus the gardener and his huge tribe of people that he was, you know, supporting. Right. Uh, plus the cats and the furries and all the other bits and pieces that we had. So I had to keep bringing the money in. So yeah, I turned them down. So those two, no prizes there, of course. Uh, but yes, I, I did have um, I did have those published a long time ago. But as I say. I've been slogging away at writing since 1985. So if you like, that's like an apprenticeship, I guess. That, that is, that's a long time to write. <laughs> it is a long time. I've always wanted to. Um, my grandfather actually ran a newspaper in China, uh, which he inherited from his father and grandfather. Uh, he hated writing. And I said, oh, Grandpa, I want to be a writer. You write for Fleet Street, you know, as a correspondent. Um, just just tell them about me and I can go and work for the Times or the Telegraph or something. <laughs> uh, he put me right. Um, so I never did get to do it uh, until I fell into it by chance. So falling into broadcasting, news broadcasting, was that part of the bayonet story? Um, yes. What happened was I was teaching at the British uh, Council School there and a friend of mine came and said, hey, they want English announcers on the radio in Benghazi, Libya, and they're paying a fortune. And they were, they were paying a huge amount of money. And she said, go along for an interview. And I did just for a joke and they accepted me. So I worked there for several years. And on one occasion, it was September the 1st, which is the Libyan 
day of revolution. Um, somebody had taken a pot shot at Colonel Gaddafi in Benghazi when he was reviewing the Navy, which consisted of one gunboat, which was 16 foot long. And I was met at the gate by these guards with fixed bayonets who escorted me, you know, followed my car in. I parked, I got out, they stuck right next to me. Um, they followed me into the um, crew room. They watched what I did. The frightening thing about it for me was that I didn't think they could understand any English. So if I'd said on air, I think Gaddafi is an idiot or something similar, or I don't believe in the revolution or whatever, um, would they have been any the wiser? Probably not. Uh, but they even went, they even followed me to the to the ladies and that was horrendous. But while I was on air and I was mainly continuity, so we were playing records or we were doing recording tapes from the control room at the same time, there was another guy with the controller with, you know, resting a bayonet on his neck as well. And I was dripping sweat. I was terrified. I was shaking like a leaf, but I was on live. So it wasn't just a question of going back and doing it later. And that was a very uncomfortable three hours that I was on air. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. I, our listeners aren't going to be able to see my face, but my jaw has just been on the floor the entire, <laughs> that entire story. <laughs> like, oh my God. The thing is, a lot of people don't believe me, uh, but I mean, things, look, you've traveled too. You know that strange things or out of this normality things can happen when you're overseas. And those countries are a law unto themselves. You know, they don't follow the same set of laws that we have on yes. a regular basis. Yes. They just don't. But anyway, I did get out of there in one piece. So um, that the is next so time good. when I went back, um, they weren't there. So that I had survived, you know. That's and so did Gaddafi on that occasion too, yeah. I'm glad you survived. I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't have these stories if you hadn't. So we are coming up on time. I do have two more questions before we jump into our rapid fire. Okay. What This question has a catch to it because I like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> the question what advice do you have for new writers like myself the catch is you can't say right anything else on the table but you can't say right oh that's a nuisance um because that's about <laughs> what i was going to say you knew that didn't you yes. um I, I i can't say right well could i could i could say practice and never give up and if you are getting a lot of bad feedback, genuinely take uh, advice from people who have been writing who have been successful. When I was lecturing in script writing, not in writing as such, but in script writing, I'd have about 40, 40 in, in, in the lecture theatre. And I could tell you at the end of the first two lectures in the series who was, would succeed and who wouldn't. They had that vision. You've got to have some vision. You've got to be able to imagine that if you're writing about having coffee in a coffee shop, as you're writing, you've got to be in that coffee shop. Well, for me, anyway, you've got to be there. You've got to be able to smell the coffee, taste the croissant, hear the chatter, hear the buzz, notice the dog under the chair or the kid throwing a temper tantrum. Um, and I think if you can place yourself in a situation and feel it while you're writing, that is going to make all the difference. That is beautiful. I couldn't have found a better way to say it myself. That is 
Beautiful. So my final question is, why do you, Lucinda E. Clark, write? Well, it's a bit like asking somebody why they take heroin. Um, there's <laughs> a difference. <laughs> it's, um, I, get, I get twitchy when I don't write. Not when I'm traveling. I wondered if I'd manage three months away, which we did at the beginning of the year, um, whether I get twitchy. But I was busy and I was traveling and I was seeing new places. So that was fine. But when I'm not traveling, and I wish I could travel more, but we're not going to be doing that much. Uh, I get actually quite twitchy if I don't write. I, it's crazy. It's like, you know, I need I need a fix. I, I need a cigarette. I need a, another shoot up of heroin. Uh, I just love doing it. I'm just there. And it's just part of me. I don't know. Blame the genes or the chromosomes or whatever they are. I agree. I can't do much else, you see. I, I'm not that good at cooking. And I used to sew and knit and stuff, but I'm the lousiest housewife in the world and I'm the hostess with the leastest. So I've got to have just one small bit of, you know, I wouldn't say talent, but something. I, I would definitely do. say talent. I mean, look, <laughs> look at what you've done. That's, that's amazing. So we are going to jump into our rapid fire round which is only 10 questions. Just right. say whatever answer comes first to top of your head. No real need to think about it too much. Oh, it's like the ink blot, ink blot test, is it? Yep. <laughs> it's all just for fun. Uh, if you don't have an answer, feel free to say pass. Okay. Are you ready? Okay, we'll go for it. All right. Paella or fish and chips? Paella vegetarian. Desert or mountains? Desert. Favorite dog breed? Small fluffy things. Um, I'm just trying to think of the right kind. Not Pekingese. Um, like, oh, we had a Yorkie. No, wait a minute. Like a fluffy Yorkie. Small and cuddly and fluffy. Okay. Night okay. on the town or quiet night at home? Quiet night at home. If all your books were destroyed in a fire and you could only save one, which would it be? Walking over eggshells. Of all the places you have lived, where would you like to go back and visit? Miami. Oh, nice. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite season? Summer. What are you currently reading? A psychological thriller by a lady called Kathy McGowan. Nice. And is a hot dog a sandwich? Not in the British sense, no. <laughs> That's 10 questions. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your time and knowledge with me. Where can our listeners find out all about you and what you're working on? Oh, right. Um, can I just... I'll have to check this out because I can never remember it exactly. Uh, I'm just trying. I've got a I've got a web page, and that's probably the best place to find me. And that is, um, uh, where are we? Oh goodness, I can't. Um, oh yes, um, Lucinda E. Clark, author. That's all one word, and that's Clark with an E. So it's Lucinda E. Clark, author dot com. And if you Google that, it should come up with all the 
various things. I've got a Facebook page for a group page for my readers. I've got a personal page. I've got, uh, but all the information generally is on my webpage. And I'll be posting that link in the show notes. Thank you once again, Lucinda, for joining us on the Great Writer Share podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed our chat, Faye. I really have. And good luck to you and to all the listeners. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Great Writer Share podcast. Next week, Dan will be joined by New York Times bestselling author of Bird Box, Josh Mallerman. Don't forget, you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writer Share podcast and the chance to ask any upcoming guests any of your questions by simply becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash great writer share. Until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, y'all. This is Kenya, creative director and co-founder of Domino Sound. And this is Alexandra De Palma, executive producer and co-founder of Domino Sound. And we're a queer, disabled, Black woman-owned podcast production company and network creating authentic, inclusive, provocative content. We just launched Domino Presents, which is a new series of special audio projects. The premiere episode features the founders of Poppy Juice, the queer art collective throwing the hottest parties in New York City and around the world. We also recommend The Cheat Code, our hit 10-episode audio soap opera surrounding a love affair. Think love and hip-hop meets The Affair meets The Sopranos. Follow us on IG at dominosoundco to keep up. And listen to our shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Domino Sound. ACAST, A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.